All right. Well, good morning, everyone, again, for the third time. Um, again, my name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. I would love if you would join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this church that you've given us. God, I just ask as we, as we dive into your word today, we're going to be dealing with um, maybe some spiritually difficult things today. And I ask that you would be with everyone in this room, that you would lay your word upon their heart. And if they need to act, help them to act. If they need to submit, help them to submit. If they need to rely and lean on you, help them to do that, Lord. I ask that you would fill your spirit and your presence in this room as we go through your word. God, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help me to make my words clear and concise so that your word is faithfully transmitted. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We pray all of this in the name of your son. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to be jumping into our series called Kingdom. I loved all of our, our songs that Virginia picked out today all kind of had a kingdom theme to it, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, we're going through the book of Matthew and we're looking at the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus as king and how we relate to his kingdom. So in the first couple of chapters, we were introduced to the birth of this king. We were told his lineage. We were told that he's the rightful heir to the kingdom we start to see that Jesus as king, he gathers his disciples, he gathers and grows his kingdom, he sets his mission statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He gives us this manifesto speech in chapters 5 through 7 of what the values of the kingdom are like. In chapters 8 and 9, he displays his authority as king. And last week we read Matthew chapter 10, where he sends out his disciples on mission and it gives us a clue as to what our mission should be in the kingdom. And so I would love it if you have your Bibles, if you have a, a smartphone with the YouVersion Bible app. We have a, an event on the Bible app if you like to read there. If you have one of our paper handouts, we can read on one of those. Which, by the way, if anybody wants one of those handouts and doesn't have one, let me know. I can still get them printed. Um, or if you just have a good old-fashioned Bible, I'd love if you'd open up with me to Matthew chapter 11. And let's just dive into God's Word. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, says, When Jesus finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done, he sent his disciples to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. While they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Look, those who wear soft clothing are in the palaces of kings. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John appeared. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. The one who has ears had better listen. So we have this odd account in the book of Matthew where John the Baptist, clear back from chapter 3, pops up in the story again, and his disciples show up, and they're asking him these questions, and are you really the Messiah? I don't know. And then, and then we have this weird thing where Jesus kind of gives him an answer, and then he turns to the crowds and starts talking about John. And It's kind of confusing to understand where this fits in the whole narrative of the book of Matthew. So let's, let's break it down here. John is showing up, or excuse me, John's disciples are showing up. John sends his disciples, and they want to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Or should we look for somebody else? Isn't that an odd thing for John the Baptist to be asking? Remember chapter 3, John the Baptist? Chapter 3, John the Baptist was out dunking people in the river, eating bugs, saying, the king is mighty, I'm not even worthy to bend down and shine his shoes. This is the one, this is coming, Jesus is coming, he's going to bring the fire. That's my paraphrase, of course. That was chapter 3, John the Baptist, but then chapter 11, John the Baptist is sending his disciples like, hey, are you really the Messiah? I'm not sure, should we go find somebody else? So what happened in between chapters 4 and chapters 10 that made John go from this guy who was fiery, on fire, on mission, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, to chapter 11 where he's like, I don't even know if he is the one who is to come. Maybe it's somebody else. Read, read, let's read verse 2 again. Now when John heard where? When John heard in prison about the deeds Christ had done. He sent his disciples. I'll tell you what happened. John had gotten crosswise with one of the most ruthless, vicious, ruling families of that time period. And he was in a dark, dirty, dungy prison. And he had no hope of getting out of there. If you've already read the book of Matthew, you know that uh, a little bit later on we find out that he doesn't end up leaving that prison. He ends up beheaded. That's the last place he ever sees the light of day. And so he was in a place of despair. A place with no hope. And the worst part about it for John was he had been dedicated to the kingdom. He was probably thinking to himself, I've done everything for you, Jesus. I proclaimed your name, I proclaimed your mission, I went out, I was faithful, I gave up my entire life to go live out in the desert and wear camel hair and eat bugs and preach the gospel. I did everything right, and here I am in this place. Anybody ever felt that way? I know I have. All that stuff that we read in chapter 10 and all that stuff we read in chapters 5 through 7 about Jesus' standard, the way we should live as Christians, 
how we should be on mission and give up everything and be dedicated to the kingdom. John's like, I did all of that stuff, and I'm still in pain. I'm still suffering. And then Jesus turns to the crowds because the crowds, the Jews at the time, were going through a very similar situation. The crowds he's talking about now here, they are all following Jesus. They had followed John before, and they were following Jesus now. And the thing you have to understand about Jews in the first century is that they were operating under this assumption that their obedience, their good deeds, their good works were going to bring on the coming of the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament about how the nation of Israel was disobedient, they worshipped false idols, they disobeyed God, they didn't follow the law, and God punished them because of their disobedience. God punished them because they didn't do what God asked. So naturally, if God punishes you because you're disobedient, what's the way that you should be rewarded? By being obedient. That makes sense, right? And so at the first century, during the time of Jesus, Judaism was at this place where they were really trying to buckle down and make up for all the mistakes that they had made in this half of the book. By and large, when, when you compare historically how Jews worshipped, the amount of idolatry was way lower. The way they were in the New Testament was a lot better than the way it was in the Old Testament. And yet, they were looking around at the Roman soldiers. They were looking around at the taxes they were having to pay. They were looking around at their oppression. And they were thinking to themselves, we've done everything right, or at least we've tried. And yet we're still in pain. We're still suffering. We're trying to obey the law. We're trying to obey the Sabbath. We're trying to follow the Messiah. We're trying to follow Jesus. And why are we still under this kind of pain? And Jesus has, has three different responses to this type of question here. We've read the first two already. For, for John, he kind of gives a, he quotes Isaiah 35, is what it is. If you have a chance, go back and read Isaiah 35, where he says, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. He tells John, he says, look around. Miracles are taking place. And he reminds John's disciples that God is not in the business of breaking promises. But then he turns to the crowd and to the crowds, he kind of gives them a tough love approach. He switches gears. He says to the crowd, he says, you guys came out and you followed John out in the desert. You know what John preached. Was John out there wearing silk robes telling you that if you're just kind and nice and follow the law, that everything's going to be great? That you're just going to have a nice, comfortable life with a two-car garage and a middle income and all of that stuff? John never said any of that. He was out there eating bugs and yelling at people. Saying, the king's going to bring the fire. Verse 16, Jesus says, To what should I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to one another. We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in mourning, yet you did not weep. So Jesus is 
tough, lo tough love approach to the crowns is basically saying, look, guys, you just, do you just expect that you're going to sing a song and God's just going to change his tune for you? You just expect that because you want something, because you want something to change, that God is going to change his plans for you? That's not how this works. You might be John the Baptist, and you might need that gentle reminder. Or you might be the crowds, and you might need somebody to kick you in the can and say, hey, wake up. You're not in charge here. I don't know. Sometimes I need the second one. Just me. But he... He tells the crowds, this is not how this works. This is not how the relationship with God works. And he rebukes the cities. So he's moved from, he's talking to John. Now he's talking to the crowd. Now he's talking to all of these cities. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You don't understand the assignment. You're not on the same page with this whole kingdom thing. You're not on the same page with the king. And then he says this. Skip ahead to verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to little children. You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. And there should really be scare quotes around that, the wise and intelligent. What Jesus is doing here is he's challenging this idea that if we just follow the rules enough, if we just read our Bibles enough, if we just pray enough, if we just go to church enough, if we just do enough, then God will reward us. And what I've noticed, and this is, this is something that's been on my heart, I've noticed that as Christians, especially this is directed to anybody who's been a Christian for a long time, we will tell new Christians or people who are new to the faith all about God's grace and His mercy and his love. And we'll tell them how wonderful it is that we are saved by God's grace, that God takes you as a wretched sinner and saves you while you're a sinner. And that, but then the way we live our lives, we act as though we don't have God's grace. We tell them the good news about how God loves them and Jesus died for them, and then we turn right around and we act like we have to earn God's love. Maybe it's not conscious, but I think a lot of us do it subconsciously where we feel like we slip into this idea where we have to do all of these things or else God's going to punish us or else God's going to not love us anymore. I've got to go to church. I've got to volunteer. I've got to do all this stuff. I've got to work, 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 earn, earn, earn. Otherwise, God might not love me anymore. I think a lot of us are in that place. Well, what happens is when, when bad things happen, when we're in pain, when we're suffering, when we're in grief, when we're in prison, where's the first place our mind goes? Maybe I sinned too much. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I didn't read my Bible enough. I, miss, I missed a day on my read the Bible in a year plan. Maybe that's why I'm in this painful spot. I don't know why we revert to that place, but I want to remind everybody here once and for all that God loves you. And God's love for you has absolutely nothing to do with what you do. God's way is a whole lot better than our way. Read verse 26. He says, 
Yes, Father, this was for your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. Verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and my load is not hard to carry. Let it go. Stop trying to do all the right things to earn God's love. Stop trying to do all of the right things. Stop trying to do everything right. And just let go and surrender to God. Because what we see is that chapter 12 gives us a perfect example of what happens when you try to earn your way into a relationship with God. Jump on down to chapter 12, verse 1. This is what happens when we try to earn our way into God's love. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick the heads of wheat and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is against the law to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and ate the sacred bread, which was against the law for him and his companions to eat, but only for the priests? Or have you not read how in the law that the priests in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are not guilty? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you would not, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Then Jesus left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there who had a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they could accuse him. What a snarky, what a snarky way to ask him, by the way. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful? Sorry, they get a little snarky. He said to them, Would not any one of you, if one had a sheep that fell into the pit on a Sabbath, take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored as healthy as the other. So after reading those two accounts, I'm going to say something that might be a little bit controversial. And full disclaimer, I give everyone here full permission to disagree with me. And just as a side note, that's an open invitation every single Sunday during any sermon. I'm not an authority, and you are absolutely just as capable of reading the Bible as I am. I just want to make sure I make that clear. But I think that the Pharisees, at the beginning, the Pharisee movement started out with good intentions. See, the, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who, number one, were dedicated to God. They loved God. Number two, they were operating on the belief that every word in Scripture is the word of God. 
Remember, the, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so everything in the Old Testament is the divine Word of God, and they believed that the highest ordered good was to read God's Word and do exactly what it says. That was the framework that they were operating under. So I, so I promise this is not a trick question. Show of hands, who here loves God? Okay, I, hopefully everybody's hands up. Who here believes that this is the Word of God? Who here believes that if we love God, we should do what he says? Okay. So the Pharisees believed all those things. We believe all those things. So when the Pharisees were reading through the law and they found where it says, you shall not work on the Sabbath, they were like, yes, sir, we're not going to do that. Well, what is work? Well, I don't know, farming, that's work, right? Okay, well, what, what is farming? Well, that's planting, harvesting, um, processing. Those are all parts of farming. And so from the Pharisees' point of view, they were looking at the Bible and they're like, well, the Bible never says how much farming is considered work. It just says don't work. And so we really want to obey God. And we really want to do what God says and be committed to God's word. So... When God says don't work on the Sabbath, we're just going to not make any exceptions because we love God and take his word seriously. And I don't care if it's 400 acres or one single head of wheat, work is work, don't do it. Again, this is their framework. This is their point of view that they're working on. Same thing with, with healing. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, healing is work. It's a job. People had a profession. People were healers and doctors. And unless somebody is going to die in that instant, their point of view was, no work means no work. I can wait till tomorrow. The man with the hand wasn't going to die. He could have waited until the next day. And I say all this not to defend the Pharisees, because they absolutely were wrong. I say all this to point out that what the Pharisees believed looked really good on paper. When you're in the synagogue and you've got your scrolls open and you're deciding how you're going to enforce God's law, it looks really good on paper. And then you get into the real world and it, it just doesn't work. Jesus points out how absurd their way of thinking is if you take it all the way to its logical conclusion. I believe as a Christian, I believe that every Christian should come to church. I believe that you should be here on Sundays. I think that God commands that. I think you should come here, you take the Lord's Supper, you should sing. I think that Jesus asks that of us. You call me and say, hey, I broke my foot, I'm going to the ER. Am I going to be like, nope, it doesn't say anything about broken foots, get to church. No, that would make me a psychopath. The Pharisees were dedicated to following the law without understanding the why behind it. And they couldn't handle Jesus challenging that status quo. And so verse 14 says, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him as to how they could assassinate him. Verse 15. It says, now when Jesus learned of this, he went away from there. Great crowds followed him and he healed them all, but he sternly warned them not to make him known. This fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I take great delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Or your Bible might say the nations will hope. It's the same word there. All people will hope in Jesus. You notice how your hope is not based on how well you follow the rules, on how well you do exactly what you're supposed to every single time. Your hope is based on the name of Jesus. But this idea for the Pharisees was such a radical shift to what they had set themselves into to the extent where they wanted to murder Jesus. They went so far as to accuse Jesus of being on the side of the devil. That's how opposed to the kingdom they were. And again, I think it'll help us to avoid our traps by trying to see where they were coming from so that we can not do that thing. So Jesus goes out. They bring to him a man who was possessed by a demon. Some people there even recognize his authority. Richard talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the authority of the king. Verse 24, the Pharisees, when they heard this, they said, he does not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So they were stuck. They were like, if our works, if our deeds don't make us right with God, if it's not following every single letter of the the law to the most literal interpretation possible with no room for mercy, no room for grace, if it's not black and white, well then the only other option is you must be working for Satan. That's how closed off they were to Jesus' mercy and grace. And I love Jesus' response here. He says, first of all, and I'm not going to read all of it, but he says, first of all, that doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan be out casting out his own demons? That's just dumb. That doesn't make sense. So first of all. And secondly, going back to the problem the Pharisees had, that John had, that the crowds had, that the cities had, Jesus gives the answer to the problem we are facing, the problem of the human condition. How do we fix what's wrong with us? The problem of, I try to do everything right, I try to obey God, I I try to be a good Christian, I try to go to church, I try to do all of the things, I feed the hungry, and yet my life is still in shambles and I feel like I don't have this relationship with God. How do I fix that? Jump on down to verse 33. Chapter 12, verse 33 says, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. I want to really zoom in on that little four-letter word there, make. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. We're not good trees to begin with. 
A bad tree can never produce good fruit, no matter how much it wants to, no matter how much it tries, no matter how much it really, really, really is trying to give good fruit. It's a bad tree. You have to make it good. Someone has to take that bad tree and turn it into a good tree. And the Pharisees were being bad trees at this point. Real quick side note, will somebody either text or go down and get Kathy and and bring her up from Children's Church? Verse 34, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, Offspring of vipers, how are you able to say anything good since you are evil? For the mouth speaks from what fills the heart. The good person brings good things out of his good treasury, and the evil person brings evil things out of his evil treasury. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. A good person brings good things out of his good treasury. The treasury is the heart. That's where your good works and your good deeds come from. They come from the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that the Pharisees, they have the equation all backwards. See, the Pharisees thought that if a person followed all the rules and said all the right things and did all of these good deeds, that eventually it would turn them into a good person and it would please God. It would bring the Messiah. And if everybody just followed the rules and did everything right, God would be pleased and he would reward them. Well, that's a a backwards equation. Jesus says, no, that's never going to work. First, God acts in your life. First, Jesus goes to the cross and destroys the power of sin and death. Then he transforms your heart. He turns you into a good tree. And from that good heart, you will naturally produce good fruit. See how the equation's completely backwards? And that's good news for us. Because I've tried the whole, try to do everything right, and maybe my life will get better thing, and it doesn't work. It's not about following the regulations. It's about undergoing transformation. It's not about following all the rules. It's about letting Jesus rule your life. It's not about doing everything right. Because you're not gonna. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 10, all of those things that Jesus expects of us, that high standard that Jesus sets for us as Christians, you and I don't actually do any of that. See, here's what happens when you become a Christian. The first thing that happens when you become a Christian is you realize you're walking in the wrong direction and you need to turn around and go this way instead. Big fancy Bible word called repentance. 
It's realizing you're going the wrong way, and you turn and you face the opposite direction. You turn back to God. Now, at this point, you're not any closer than you were before. You're just facing this way. But you're still in the same spot. And the next thing you do is you declare Jesus Lord of your life. You make him ruler of your life. You dedicate every aspect of yourself to him. And then what you do and what the Bible teaches, and this is very important, you come to the realization that the old you, the you who was walking this way, is never going to be able to walk this way. He needs to die. I died in 2016, 2017. I came to the realization that I was a bad tree, and the only way to be a good tree was to chop down and kill the old tree and plant a new one, to be born again. So you take that old self, the one that was walking that way, and you take him back behind the shed, and you put him out of his misery. That's what Christian baptism is. Romans 6. Paul says, Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. We are dead. We are no longer alive in the water. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. Second part's important. It is not enough just to put your old spiritual self to death. You have to replace that bad tree with something new. Turn back to Matthew 12. I want to finish this chapter up. Matthew 12, verse 43 says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, looking for rest, but it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the home I left. When it returns, it finds the house empty, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there so that the last, so that the last state of the person is worse than the first. It will be that way for this evil generation as well. If you cut down that old tree and you don't plant something new, a rotten, dirty old tree is going to go right back up in its place. You have to replace your old self with something new. That's called the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches in the book of Acts, chapter 2, that when you come up out of the water, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God dwells within you. And God's Spirit is the one doing all of the good work. All of the things that Jesus asks us to do, it's not us doing it. It's God himself dwelling within you. Here's what I want everyone here to understand. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, stop trying to do everything right. Stop trying because it's never going to work. If you are a Christian, if you have died to your sins, then you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Get out of God's way and let God do the work. Let God produce the fruit inside of you. And stop trying so hard to get in His way and just let God transform your life. Submit to Him. Let Him change you.
because you are a child of God. Verse 46 says, While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. To the one who had said this, Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Galatians chapter 4 says, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. That's the spirit I was talking about. Who cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, you are also an heir through God. You're a child of God. And you realize that you're not having to check all the right boxes and do all the right things because you've been adopted into the royal family. You have that relationship with Jesus, and that's how you are judged. And if you're not an heir to the kingdom, if you're not in the family of God, if you haven't died to your sins and you've been trying to earn your way back in, you've got to die first. We came in yesterday. We cleaned the church. Stu did a phenomenal job. The baptistry is completely cleaned out, and it looks sparkling in there. And if anybody needs to make that decision to die to their sins, it's time to become the person who God wants you to be. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for everything that you give us. God, I just ask that you would be with us. I ask that you would stir our hearts. And I ask that you would transform our lives. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. All right, at this time, we're going to sing a song of invitation.